I just feel like after that we could just go home. <laughs> we don't oh, that would be a shame. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That was just so good. Um, God is so evidently in this place this morning. And I'm so grateful for that. And as we were singing that last song, the words, all I need is you, my prayer was for myself and for all of us is that we would truly live that. We would actually believe that. We wouldn't just sing those words, all I need is you. It's a simple phrase. It's something we can get stuck on and we can sing. And we, we maybe don't actually know what we're singing or we don't pay attention to what we're singing. But do we live that? Do we really believe that all we need is Jesus? All we need is Jesus to heal our brokenness. All we need is Jesus, this light in a dark world. And so that was my prayer over myself and my prayer over this church and over each one of you, is that we would not just sing those words, but that we would, we would believe it. So I'm going to come down off of that little high for just a minute. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Heather, and I'm married to the smoking hot man in the front row. He's Canadian, which adds to his intrigue. <laughs> um, he's been gone for a week, so there's, you know, there's that. <laughs> um, I get the privilege of leading the teaching team here at Church 214, and it, we, we basically, um, our leadership team and our teaching team, we take the place of one single pastor. So if you've been here a couple times and you're confused by that and you don't understand why there's multiple people coming up to preach, it's because there are multiple people coming up to preach. And there are 10 of us that rotate and take turns preaching. And so I had to laugh a little bit when my brother-in-law, Kip, last week said that he was really hoping he would get the chapter on Daniel and the lion's den, chapter 6. We're in the middle of this series called Counter Culture, all on the book of Daniel. And I was the one who assigned the specific chapters to the four of us that are preaching in this series. And when I assigned the chapters, I didn't think about looking to see which chapters I was assigning myself. <laughs> Turns out, Mike Crowley and I got the short end of the straw. Because Phil and Kip got awesome stories like Daniel in the lion's den and the fiery furnace. And when Nebuchadnezzar freaks out and turns into like beast mode and goes out and roams in the, in the desert. And I love stories. Like I love, especially Bible stories. And I love to tell Bible stories. Well, Mike and I, we got chapter seven through 12. And they're all about dreams and visions and prophecies of beasts with silly little horns coming out of their head. And for centuries, theologians have argued about what they all mean. Sorry, Mike. You're up next week. Good luck, buddy. Okay, are you ready to hear some super cool stuff about the book of Daniel? Okay, awesome. I want you to think of today as more of a Bible class, all right, than just a message you go to church and feel good about when you walk out. You're going to learn some awesome stuff today, but don't worry, there is not a test. Okay, all right, about half of the original text of Daniel, there are 12 chapters in the book of Daniel, half of it is written in Hebrew. Hebrew was the language of the Jewish people, okay, throughout all of time, it is their, la their language. Then chapters 2 through 7, right in the middle of the book, are written in Aramaic, which was the commercial and diplomatic language of that time in the city of Babylon. 
This is just another fact of how Daniel adapted to the culture around him. Even though Aramaic wasn't his own language, in order to be understood by and to understand the people that he was living with for the majority of his life, he wrote half of the book in Aramaic. Yet he never changed the part of his identity that really mattered. The part about being faithful to his God, the one true God. The part about being obedient to God. I think that this is an important fact that just by reading the book of Daniel, we wouldn't know. But when you dig in and start to study it, you find this out. And I think it's important and we shouldn't miss it. Because adapting to the culture around us is often necessary. If we want to be able to understand and be understood by the people that God has called us here to love and serve and spread the light of Jesus to, we may have to adapt some things in our lives. That might not sound countercultural to us, but this is where wisdom and seeking God and knowing God's truth comes into play. What are the things in culture that we can adapt to and still hold true to what the Bible says we are supposed to do and follow? And what are the non-negotiables? What are the things that we should be countercultural in? I think there are some really blatant ones in the Bible. How we treat other people. I think the Bible is very clear that we are to love people that we are to always speak with kindness to other people. Even if we're speaking truth, it is to be in love. I think the Bible is super clear on that. I think marriage, there's a very clear stance in the Bible on what marriage is between a man and a woman, and that is how God designed it. And we are to take a stance on that, and we are to speak up, and we are to hold true to that promise. There's only one way to God, and it is through Jesus. There's no other way around it. It's a very blatant, non-negotiable standard that we hold ourselves to. Being faithful to our spouses, that's another one. I don't think culture would say it's okay to play around. It's okay to not be faithful to your spouse. God says it is not. That's a standard we should hold to. Those are just a few things, and there are a lot more, but then there are some other things. There are things that are individual convictions. I want you to pay attention to this. Things that the Bible leaves gray. It isn't a black and white, this is exactly how you should live, this is exactly how you should do it. It's gray. Those are things between you and the Lord. Areas of your life that you hold a personal conviction on and you take a stand on. Maybe sometimes you have to stand alone in it. Maybe sometimes you lose some Facebook friends because you took a stand. Maybe sometimes you lose some real friends, because let's just be honest, Facebook friends, usually not real friends. But in doing so, in taking a stand, you are being countercultural to many people, even to other Christians. This list could go on and on and on and on, but I'm just going to leave it right there because, again, it's between you and the Lord. I could give you a list, but those might be my personal convictions. Those might not be the things God has called you to to take a stand on. It's between you, your spouse, your family, and the Lord. 
Daniel was able to differentiate between these things. What things were important that he stand his ground on and in what things did he need to be culturally relevant in? I think this is a really important and very timely question for us to ask ourselves. What are the things that it is okay for us to adapt to culture and be engaged in culture with and what are the things that are non-negotiables that God's word says this is what I have called you to. The book of Daniel is considered half historical. The first half of it is, is historical. There's a little bit of prophecy and visions thrown in. Things that are still to come or were still to come. Chapters 7 through 12, the prophetic chapters, are very similar to the prophecies given to John in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the last book of the Bible and this Okay, geek out time, like so cool, you guys. Okay, most of the Bible, like this much of the Bible, let me find a revelation. Okay, it's right there somewhere, close enough. Okay, oh, Jude, I have a nephew named Jude, cool. Okay, this much of the Bible has already happened. Okay, there's a, there's a few things thrown in there, a few chapters in some of the prophets that are prophetic that are still to come. This part hasn't happened yet, for the most part. Revelation. Okay, so what that means is there's a chance that we could live in the time frame that all of this happens. Some of you are freaking out right now. You're like, I read the Bible, it's scary. But I think that it is so cool to see God speaking the same things about his plan to Daniel in ancient time, well before God sent his son Jesus to the earth, and then also to John in early Christian times. And John was one of Jesus' dearest and best friends and one of his disciples and walked on earth with him. That was 500 plus years apart. God was speaking the same things to them. Does anybody else think that that's cool? Okay. Okay, awesome. Just want to make sure you're awake. Maybe I should give you a test. In Daniel, the prophecies were all about Jesus coming to earth and then some future prophecies about the end of time as, that we, we know have not been fulfilled yet. Okay, and the visions that he gave to John in Revelation, John already knew Jesus. John had walked on the paths of earth with Jesus. John knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And the prophecies that he was given were of future events that were surrounding the end of time and when Jesus would return for a second time. Most of those prophecies have, um, in Daniel have been fulfilled and most of the prophecies in Revelation have not been fulfilled. So I just love seeing God speak throughout generations to different people about the very same things. You know what that shows me? It shows me that God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't get part of the way through his big plan for earth and then go, ah, yeah, you know, I don't really like that part of it. I'm going to switch things up. No, 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 no. God, in Numbers 23, says God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human. He does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried through with it? No, because he is God. He is not man. I want you to remember, if you're taking notes, I want you to write these words down, the word perspective and the word promise. And if you're not taking notes, then your memory is going to have to help you out here. Okay, remember those two words, because we're going to come back to them in a couple minutes. 
As I mentioned earlier, the first six chapters are full of stories of Daniel and his friends and they're in captivity in Babylon and all of the events that are surrounding this time period. Most of you know that I home edu educate our two children, Bennett and Juliet, and they are three years apart in school, but some subjects we do together. One of those subjects this year is ancient history. And we are 20 weeks into our school year and we're about halfway through our ancient history curriculum. These last few weeks I've been studying Daniel and I've been reading commentary on Daniel and I've been pouring through it and I've been writing all this stuff down about Daniel and, and where he lived. And the entire book of Daniel is set in ancient times, specifically in Babylon. Guess what my kids and I studied in ancient history school curriculum just this past week? Babylon. The Medes, the Persians, if you remember last week, Kit mentioned King Darius, he was a Mede, came in and conquered Babylon. The Hanging Gardens, Cyrus the Great, all of the stuff we studied this past week, I didn't plan that, you guys, was exactly in the same time frame as the historical events captured in the book of Daniel. Don't ever think that God doesn't care about the very specific parts of your life. As menial as they may seem, he knows and he cares about them. You know what that said to me? It was him saying, hey girl, I know you spend a lot of your time planning and teaching your kids school, and I'm just going to affect coincidence, and I'm going to show you that I see you. Some people, nope, not me, baby. I call it divine interaction in my life. Divine interaction. Do not miss the divine interactions in your own life. God sees you, every single one of you. He sees you, and he knows you, and he cares so much about you. He knows the little things, the things you don't tell anyone that are hidden deep inside. He knows how to show you that he loves you. Stop seeing those things that he does for you as coincidences and start seeing them as divine interactions, not interventions, interactions. It means participation in your life. Okay, so back to Babylon for a little bit. I'm gonna give you a whole bunch of dates. Don't worry, you don't have to memorize them, but they're really cool. The capture of Jerusalem, which was the city where the Jews lived, it was their, their capital city, by Nebuchadnezzar, and the captivity of the Jews takes place in 597 BC. If you're forgetting education and your early school days, BC is before Christ, okay, before Jesus came to earth. Um, some of you might remember from history in school, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world were the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar had those built for his wife because she was from a foreign country, and the country that she was from was very green, had lots of vegetation and rolling hills, and Babylon was dry and dusty and desert, and she missed it. She was terribly homesick. So history tells us that King Nebuchadnezzar had those built so that his wife would have some place to go where she wouldn't feel so homesick. Those gardens are thought to have been built around 605 BC. That is the exact same year many theologians believe that Daniel came to Babylon. Okay, so that helps. Sometimes connecting historical events and biblical events helps humanize the things in the Bible a little bit. Sometimes I think we, we look at this a little bit like a fairy tale. 
something that isn't true. But when we connect it to history, it's, it makes it a little bit more um, real, to me at least. So Babylon was a great superpower through much of the pre-Christian era, much of the time before Jesus came to earth. Its history is very long, thousands of years, and very tumultuous, and it even includes the Tower of Babel, which you will know from the book of Genesis. Um, but the demise of Babylon was prophesied by several other prophets throughout history, and every single one of them came true. Nearly 200 years before Daniel was in Babylon, the prophet Isaiah prophesied this about the city of Babylon, and I want to read this to you. Isaiah, son of Amos, received this message concerning the destruction of Babylon. Remember, this is 200 years before Daniel gets to Babylon. For see, the day of the Lord is coming, the terrible day of his fury and fierce anger. The land will be made desolate. I will crush the arrogance of the proud and humble the pride of the mighty. I will make people scarcer than gold. Look, I will stir up the Medes. There's King Darius again, the Medes. Stir up the Medes against Babylon. Babylon, the most glorious of kingdoms, the flower of Chaldean pride, will be devastated like Sodom and Gomorrah when God destroyed them. Babylon will never be inhabited again. It will remain empty for generation after generation. Nomads will refuse to camp there, and the shepherds will not bed down their sheep. Desert animals will move into the ruined city, and the houses will be haunted by howling creatures. Babylon's days are numbered. Its time of destruction will soon arrive. I want you to think about this. It's very likely that Daniel knew those prophecies of Isaiah. They were passed on from generation to generation. It was, it was technically their Bible, their word of God, okay? Not all bound up neat like we have it, but those were passed on. So he knew this, this prophecy. Can you imagine him being taken into captivity and being like, wow, this is the city that God has said he's going to destroy? Really hope I'm not here when that happens. Like, you want to talk about mind games, those are some mind games. By the time that Jesus comes to earth, the city was in ruins. In the early 300s BC, you can see this on the timeline, Alexander the Great had seized power in that region, including in Babylon. And after this, the city just began to decline and lost all of its greatness and all of its power. In 1899 AD, okay, we're way, way forward now, German archaeologists went to this area in Iraq, which is the exact place where Babylon was, called Tel Babel, and they began to dig up parts of Babylon, the ancient city of Babylon. In 1978, the president of Iraq, Saddam Hussein, began to use some of the reclaimed bricks and stones from ancient Babylon to remodel and build new buildings in the modern city of Baghdad. Just let that sink in for a second. But today, Babylon itself is still an empty city. Tourists can go there during times of peace and see parts of the rebuilt city, but they have remained completely empty for 2,000 years. The city is exactly as Isaiah had prophesied that it would be, not inhabited from generation to generation. It's desolate, wild animals roam on it, and it's one more example of the prophecies that God gave his people being fulfilled and God's word being truth. God holding true to his promises. There's that word again, promises. 
Okay, now you have some historical background on Daniel and on Babylon. Let's look at chapters 7, 8, and 9. These are the chapters I assigned myself. There is so much in here, and there's no way we could possibly impact it all. Mike and I were joking that we would need a whole series, a very long series, in order to cover it all. We're not going to try to do that. Um, I'm going to do my best to explain these visions to you. Keep in mind that there are many debates over the actual meanings of them, and we may not know that until Jesus comes back. Even Daniel himself was confused by some of this, okay? He says at the end of chapter 8, Then I, Daniel, was overcome no doubt, and lay sick for several days. Afterward, I got up and performed my duties for the king. I love that he went back to work. But I was greatly troubled by the vision and could not understand it. So if you don't understand it, you are in great company. All right, I'm going to read Daniel 7. It isn't up on the screen, but I hope that I can read it excitedly enough to keep your attention. Earlier, during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, Daniel had a dream and saw visions as he lay in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and this is what he saw. Okay, side note, if you feel like God ever speaks to you at night when you're trying to go to sleep, which I think he does to a lot of us, keep some pen and paper by your bed, because I guarantee you, if you don't write it down in the morning, you will have forgotten it. In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of the great sea with strong winds blowing from every direction. Then four huge beasts came up out of the water, each different from the others. The first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings. And then I saw a second beast, and it looked like a bear. It was rearing up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. Then the third of these strange beasts appeared, and it looked like a leopard. It had four bird's wings on its back, and it had four heads. Great authority was given to this beast. Then, in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from the other beasts, and it had ten horns. Remember that. I was looking at the horns. Suddenly, another horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. This little horn had eyes like a human and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. I'm officially freaked out right now. I watched as thrones were being put in place and the ancient one sat down to judge. I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by fire. The three other beasts had their authority taken from them, but they were allowed to live a little while longer. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and every nation and every language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never be to end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Okay, there's a lot there, but I'm going to point out three things. First, this vision that Daniel has parallels the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2. If you weren't here, you can go back and listen to Phil's message from two weeks ago because he talks about that vision, that dream. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. He didn't know what it meant. None of his wise men knew what it meant. He said, can anybody tell me what this dream means? But he wouldn't tell them the dream. Daniel had to pray and ask God to show him the dream. Daniel was able to interpret the dream. 
That was 60 years before Daniel had this dream. The difference in these dreams, while they mean the same thing, is very telling, though. I'm going to point this out because I want to remind you of the same word again, perspective. Circle it, highlight it, write it down. In chapter 2, the images that were given, and I'll remind you because I know it's been a couple weeks, the images were given, were seen from man's perspective. The image was of a statue, and it was made out of gold, silver, brass, iron, and clay. All things that man can relate to, can conjure up in their minds and know what they are. In chapter 7, in Daniel's dream, the same kingdoms were talked about, but they were seen as beasts not known to humans. A lion with eagle's wings, a bear with ribs hanging from its teeth, a leopard with bird's wings and four heads, and the fourth beast, which was so terrifying and had ten horns and another horn that suddenly appeared. Those two dreams meant the same things. But in chapter 2, the dream appears to have been from a man's perspective. Things that a man would know. Gold, silver, brass, iron, and clay. In chapter 7, the dream seems to be from God's perspective. The four beasts that are unknown to man. Here's the whole point of my whole message. God's perspective is always different from man's perspective. And oftentimes, we cannot understand his perspective. Isaiah 55, 9 says, For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, God's ways, higher than your ways, man's ways. And so are my thoughts, God's thoughts, higher than our thoughts. God's perspective is not like our perspective. But we must trust him even when we do not understand. We must trust God's promises and God's perspective even when it's not our perspective and even when we do not understand it. The second thing from chapter 7. The same thing as in chapter 2. The four beasts and the five elements, the gold, silver, brass, iron, and clay, represent four world empires. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. These are represented and talked about in this prophecy between the time of Daniel and the time that Jesus comes. Those were four very powerful world powers that were in charge, in power, during that time period. The fourth beast in this um, chapter 7 has ten horns, which give imagery for us to ten kingdoms that were established by the Roman Empire and given power in that region. They were spread out in, into ten different regions and given power. The ten horns, which Revelation also talks about, also prophetically may represent a ten-nation confederacy that will form in the last days here on earth, something that has not yet happened. That little horn that shoots out of the big horns and takes three of them out, like, get out of my way, I'm the powerful one, that is another world power, or represents, most likely, a world power that is not a part of the ten-power confederacy, confederacy that is going to come, but it also might symbolize the Antichrist, who will come to earth in the name of peace, but actually will bring destruction and chaos and um, persecution to followers of Jesus, and ultimately here's the good news, be defeated by Jesus when he comes back to earth the second time. 
Okay, the third thing from Daniel. You're sticking with me, that's good. In Daniel 7.13, Daniel refers to the Son of Man. It's the first time that Jesus is referred to in the Old Testament by this term, which is a foretelling of him coming to earth. This is crucial because Daniel at this point did not understand what he was seeing in his dream. He did not understand that it was a prophecy of the Messiah coming to earth as a baby through human parents. Again, perspective. Daniel's perspective was so small because in context, this term, term son of man didn't make sense to him in reference to the Messiah. Isn't our perspective of what God is saying to us often so clouded and so misunderstood because we think that if we don't understand it, it must not be right? But Daniel trusted God and trusted God's promises. We must trust God's promises and God's perspective, even when it's not our own perspective and we don't understand it. Chapter 8. Two years later, after that dream, Daniel has another dream and another vision. We're going to move really quickly through this one because while the vision is different, the meaning is exactly the same. This time the imagery is of a ram and a goat and more horns and also the destruction of the city of Babylon by Alexander the Great in 300 BC. And I just want to highlight a couple of verses from there. Daniel 8, starting in verse 15. As I, Daniel, was trying to understand the meaning of this vision, someone who looked like a man stood in front of me. As Gabriel approached the place where I was standing, Gabriel was an angel, I became so terrified that I fell with my face to the ground. He said, you must understand that the events you have seen in your vision relate to the end of time. What you have seen pertains to the very end of time. Daniel doesn't understand what he's seeing. So he asks God, and God sends the angel Gabriel to visit him and help him understand. There's a lot of times we might not understand, but ask God. Say, God, what what is this supposed to mean in my life? Have a conversation with him, and he will come, and he will answer you, and you may still not understand it, but he will answer you. Then in chapter 9, we find that the Babylon captivity of the Jewish people. Okay, the Jewish people are in captivity in Babylon, and it's drawing to a close. It's lasted 70 years. The Medes have taken over, and then the Persians have taken over. And it won't be long before Cyrus the Great, who is a Persian, releases the Jews to go back to their land of Canaan. He says, you're free to go. Go home. He's actually a really cool study. He's a really cool man. I think he loved the Lord. And if you ever want to get into ancient history start with him. He's cool. All right. Then in Daniel, um, in Daniel 9, the first half of chapter 9, first half of the chapter, Daniel pleads with God in prayer for his people. He knows his people, his people have disobeyed and they failed God and he's confessing his sin and the sin of his people. He's petitioning God to save them and rescue them from the captivity that they've been in for 70 years. The second half of Daniel 9 is God answering Daniel's pleas. This is super cool. I know I say that a lot, but I just think the Bible is really cool. 
I went on praying, this is Daniel, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, pleading with the Lord my God for Jerusalem, his holy mountain. And as I was praying, Gabriel, whom I had seen earlier in my vision, came swiftly to me at the time of the evening sacrifice. He explained to me, Daniel, I have come here to give you insight and understanding. The moment you begin praying, a command was given. That's not the first time the Bible talks about that. When you pray, God commands, and he sends someone to rescue you. For now, I am here to tell you what it was, for you are very precious to God. Listen carefully so you can understand the meaning of your vision. A period of 70 sets of seven have been decreed for your people and your holy city to, refinish, to finish their rebellion, to put an end to their sin, to atone for their guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness. He's talking about Jesus coming back to earth to confirm the prophetic visions and to anoint the most holy place. Now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem with a, until a ruler, the anointed one, again, Jesus, comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. There are a lot of sevens and a lot of numbers and can be very confusing. And if you like numbers and you're a math geek, then you're really excited right now. The rest of us are like, I have no idea what that means. Gabriel is telling him that all of this relates to when Jesus comes to earth and when he dies and when he atones for the sins of his people. Those 70 weeks that he mentions are generally understood to mean 70 weeks of years. That's 70 times 7 years, or 490 years. The exile has been 70 years long, the time when the people are in captivity. And the period between the exile and the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, to earth, would be 7 times that long. Jerusalem had previously been plundered and was in ruins and it had been destroyed. And when the, when the Jews were taken into captivity, and it's around this time that Cyrus the Great says, okay, you can go back to Canaan, you can go back to Jerusalem. There were also around this time three decrees given by Persian kings to rebuild Jerusalem. He said, this is important, we need to rebuild the city, and three decrees were given. The main decree happened in 458 BC by Cyrus, and we actually can find exact reference to that in the book of Ezra, which is a prophet from earlier days. The days of these 70 weeks, or 490 years, were to be counted, were to begin from the time of that decree that Cyrus gave. Without boring you with all the breakdown, because that would take a very long time, we end up with 483 years from that decree that Cyrus gave to say, rebuild Jerusalem. If we take 458 BC, Holly, if you could put the timeline up there, 458 BC, which was the year, plus 480 years, 83 years, which is what the prophecy shows from the time of the decree, we get to A.D. Jesus, year six. Do you know what year A.D. 26 was? Jesus was baptized and began his public ministry on earth. It was an exact fulfillment of the prophecy that Daniel was given by God, spoken through the angel Gabriel, and it fulfilled that vision almost 500 years earlier. 
This chapter, these chapters also talk about three and a half, seven years and three and a half years. And at three and a half year mark, Jesus is crucified, which also fills, fulfills prophecy from that. And there's so much more, so much more that we could get into that we don't have time. But instead, let me pull some things from all of this knowledge that I've just given you that I felt like God speak, spoke over me to give to you. In learning all of this, I hope that it does a couple of things. I hope that it increases your faith in God and in who he says he is. I hope it increases your belief that his word that seems so old, that seems so ancient is real and that he will fulfill all of what his word says he will. But I also know that having Bible knowledge is one thing and while it's great to have in our lives, God's promises add so much richness to our lives, but taking something home that directly applies to you today is also very important. So let's go back to those words, promise and perspective. This is your takeaway. I've said it a few times. I'm going to say it again. We must trust God's promises and God's perspective, even when it's not our perspective and we don't understand it. Are you living your life through man's perspective or are you living your life through God's perspective, even if you don't understand it? When we live our lives according to man's perspectives, we conform to the world. When we live our lives according to God's perspective, we conform to God. Romans 12.2 says, Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. If we see things the way that we have always seen them, the result of our lives will stay the exact same. If we begin to see something the way that God intends for us to see it, then we get different results. If you aren't happy with the direction of your life, if you aren't happy with the, the things that are going on in your life, maybe you're seeing it from man's perspective and not from God's perspective. When Daniel had those dreams, and even when he prayed the prayer for God to rescue his people, his perspective was small compared to God's. Daniel was asking for the deliverance and freedom of his people from bondage for 70 years. God was projecting and revealing freedom for his people for eternity. And not just for Daniel's people, but for all of mankind. Daniel's perspective was so small compared to God's plan for everyone to have a chance to have eternal life. God's ways are beyond our grasp, but do we trust him? We must trust God's promises and God's perspective, even when it's not our perspective and we do not understand it. In what areas of your life do you need to shift your perspective from man's perspective to God's perspective? Is it in how you manage your money? The Bible has a lot to say about money. Are you always struggling with money? Does it never just seem to work out? Are you following man's perspective on money? Do you need to switch to God's perspective on money? How about how you treat your spouse? In our culture today, 
You're not, suppo- you're not supposed to put your spouse first. It's me first. Selfie. It's all about me. But God says, you have, to, you have to treat your spouse better than you treat yourself. That's hard. Is it in how you speak to people? Is it the tone? Is it the words you use? Is it the things you put on Facebook? Like, like society would say, put your feelings out there, even if it hurts a bunch of people. God would say, love one another. Use kindness. Is it how you trust God? Are you trusting God based on what man says? You should trust God, which is really trust yourself. Trust what you can do. Trust what you can bring. Trust who you are. Or are you laying yourself down and saying, I trust God. I trust God. God says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will. I promise you, church, not my promises, his promises. Over and over and over again, he promises and he fulfills his promises. He will bring forth your righteousness. I love this so much as the light and your justice as the noonday. And I think that is what happened to Daniel. I think Daniel trusted the Lord. He committed his way to the Lord. He knew which areas of his life were non-negotiable and which ways he could go with culture. He committed them to the Lord and the Lord said, I'm going to bring forth your righteousness, Daniel. I'm going to use you to speak about the end of time, about my great big plan that I've been planning for a long time, and then you're going to be my mouthpiece. The book of Daniel is just another example of God being true to his word, of God honoring his promises. That is what I want you to walk away with today. God is faithful. We may not always understand his ways, but he is always faithful. And he always fulfills his promises. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is truth. I thank you that your word gives us hope. I thank you that in times in our lives, in times in our culture, in times in our history, when it feels like there's so much chaos that you are peace and joy and love and hope and you are good and you are right. Help us to know that today, God. Help us to feel that today. Help us to know that you are always faithful and that you always keep your promises. In Jesus' name.